Once there was a princess. Was the princess you? And she fell in love. Was it hard to do? It was very easy. Anyone could see that the prince was charming. The only one for me. Was he uh, strong and handsome? Was he big and tall? There's nobody like him. Anywhere at all. Did he say he loved you? Did he steal a kiss? Hello, and welcome to a new episode of uh, Side Story Studios' podcast on Devil's Advocate. We're doing uh, a classic this week that we felt that uh, we kind of owed it to uh, give our our modern critique to. And, and we're talking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, arguably the first feature-length animated feature. And though there are other uh, animated features from around the world, namely one from India, which I'm not remembering the name of, um, that used shadow puppetry, and I think you said the year 1911. Yeah, 19. I thought it was 1919, um, but definitely like just turn of the century. But in any case, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is the first feature-length animated feature in kind of the uh, the modern cartoon sensibility. Yes. Yeah. Um, animation. The definition in the beginnings of it is is a loose term that typically just meant anything that wasn't live action. <laughs> Um, and given the, the very limited range and scope of what that could have meant, there's a lot that kind of falls into the category. But Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is kind of the West's and America's claim to fame in our first major motion picture um, through animation. So um, we've decided to kind of take a look at some of the more historical and important animated pieces that have really set the tone for how the, the history and the, the quality of that style of cinema has progressed over the years. Um, and Snow White being the first seems like a very logical place to start. Uh, now, rest assured, um, <clears throat> you figure that when, when you watch a classic like this, especially one that was made in 1937 of all years, um, it, you, you find that uh, it doesn't hold up as well. And I think in um, society, there's a general sense that early Disney doesn't uh hold up as well as like people think it did but i walking away from this movie snow white's pretty good guys it's it's worth another watch it's funny because and um matthew my my boyfriend actually has a very very funny opinion on things like this because there's a very specific way that people used to talk in the 1930s to the 50s um, and some people get really aggravated by it. Yeah. And that's totally fair. Um, but it is it is very much present in films like this. Um, and it's a reflection of the time that it's made. And it does kind of date it slightly because of how language changes and how accents change and things like that. But that kind of thing aside, once you look past the fact that it is dated by way of like the voice acting and the editing and the like sound quality... As as just a pure story, it's it it still holds up, and and specifically some of those dating elements include Snow White's singing voice. Um, it, it is definitely very uh, it it's it's Trey uh cartoon like Betty Boop kind of feel. Yeah. Um, but I think people this is one of the last vestiges that people encounter uh classical trained singers in popular culture. So, um, oftentimes, this is very jarring for listeners. They don't really like her voice because it's very high-pitched. Yeah, it's, it's almost operatic in a way. Um, and it is. This, this movie very much functions as an operetta, surprisingly. Um, so, we, 
before there's there's so much to talk about in the sense of like what this did for the cinema the, the history of animated films from that point forward um and and there's a lot to be talked about but um the the visual side of it which is is kind of my favorite um has this great quality that i mean is is totally typical of disney's early work because it's it's the xerox cell shaded sheets and it's all the in-betweeners and it's classical painting and it's the very beginnings of rotoscoping and there's there's a lot of detail here that's easy to miss um but there are things that disney did better than anybody else and and i mean that in the sense of the studio not disney himself but um and one of those things that's really prevalent through this movie is that everything is treated with love and care um, there's so many scenes with all of the animals in the forest who, who follow Snow White around and who have a really, you know, important role to play. And every single one of them is characterized without any words or any, like, special attention. There's no, like, cropping in close or zooming in on them. It's just things they do in scenes that really add a dimension to their character. Um, one of my favorites is when she first gets up from, from fainting in the forest She's, like, surrounded by animals, but this one baby deer, like, nuzzles under her arm and manages to, like, bend itself in the crook of her lap. And it happens in, in a mob of other things happening, so it's something that's really easily overlooked. But the amount of detail that went into animating this sequence for this one baby deer is just really reflective of, like, the, the people really, really cared. And that's the benefit of doing something in traditional animation, in... in literally hand drawing the entire scene because every single character every single minutiae like detail of that character's existence had to be chosen you know yeah and all of those animal characters each had their own character each had their own uh drive in each scene each had their own motivation and it's so like breathtaking to see even when they introduce the seven dwarfs they never do anything the same way. And you were pointing this out, too. Yeah. You can always... They, they're they all characterized consistently. And it's not like a gag that you see a few times where, like, they, they have reactions to specific things. It's every time we see them, they're all still themselves. And even something as simple as, like, being committed to where they are in a scene. Like, sometimes they'll move around in a group or a scene will cut back and forth you would kind of expect that would be one of the animation goofs where, like, they accidentally color one of the dwarves the wrong way or switch up positions. But it, it doesn't, from what we, what I was looking. And, yeah. And I didn't notice anything. And just something like that where it's, there's a really strong commitment to making sure they all stay independent. They're not easily confused. Then it's, you know, it's hard to confuse them because they're all so different. Um, and it is really nice to, to know that the studio cared that deeply about like their content as characters and for their first film this was very ambitious absolutely to do i mean there's the seven eight nine major characters not including the prince or any of the animals that all needed design and animation and voices so it's it's really 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 like cool to know that in the, even the beginning of this not knowing like what was going to happen if it was going to make any money like what the like what they were making for the world they were still really committed to being honest and true to the characters that they were putting on paper. And that's what made the movie, in the end, work. And this was called Disney's Folly before it actually hit theaters. No one thought they could make a feature-length animated film function. Um, and you kind of notice 
the steps they had to take to do it. Because if you kind of like refer to early cartoons, and we've talked about this before, cartoons started out as like vaudeville acts. Like, you know, they would they would be shorts only, and they would tell a few gags, and then they'd go off stage and, and you'd laugh. But um, this movie is very much crafted not in like cinematic scenes or like theatrical scenes, but it's it's done in sequences. It's uh, as opposed to what does the previous scene tell you about the next one and where these characters go. It's more like, well, uh, I bet you, you know, uh, it'd be pretty funny to watch these dwarves wash their hands, <laughs> and you get and you get a five minute sequence of them washing their hands. Um, before we move into the pacing, which is something that I think is important, um, one one more small story about Snow White that is is one of my favorites of like all of animation history. Um, there, there's a very in the beginning days of Disney, there was a lot of different teams that that went into making animated films, and one of the departments was um, the the paint and ink department, which was responsible for a lot of the like final line and cleanup and in between process. And during the production of Snow White, there was Walt Disney was never satisfied with how lifeless Snow White felt. She was very pale, obviously. Um, and this was before they, they couldn't figure out how to color her well. And the story that I had always been told was that some of the, the paint and ink department, which was entirely women, had suggested that they rouge her cheeks um, with their own blush to kind of give her that like really faint glow. And while that was attempted, it did not work. <laughs> and they ended up dyeing the, the sheets and wiping off the dye to leave like a really faint ghostly mark. Um, and the woman who actually figured out this process and almost single-handedly did that to this entire film was a woman named Helen Auger, um, who left the studio, I think, in the, the late 40s um, in that big strike that Disney lost a lot mm, of its people. A lot of people. Um, but she, she kind of goes unknown throughout throughout Disney's history, despite the fact that she is one of like the single most capable animator, female animators that came out of that era. So um, it's neat to know that like one person, if you go back and watch this, there's one person essentially who is responsible for every time you see Snow White's like blushed cheeks or even the Evil Queen's um, cheeks or that old hag's nose. That like really faint, subtle bit of color makes a huge difference to the characters, but also was like very much a labor of love. And it's so funny because the minute you mentioned that to me, I was paying attention and it's so cool because when you see it, it subtly changes every moment, her blush. And it weirdly doesn't take away from her realism. Yeah. It weirdly adds to it. And I just love the fact that, yeah, this is this is this woman's efforts here so so many years uh, away from it you know and, and it, it adds a lot it really does it's a small detail that you would totally overlook but her effort like made a huge difference um so yeah just one of those one of those things that just is constantly inspirational one thing i always like really appreciate about this movie when i watch it is um, how detailed the backgrounds are, particularly in their Germanic Nordicness. Um, yeah. I really love how everything in the dwarf's house is like so, like it's like wood carved, like animals and stuff like that. And it reminds me, I own this book. It's it's a book of like Robert Schumann songs, but it's like yeah. from when Robert Schumann was alive, <laughs> and it has all of these like engravings and stuff. And it's as detailed and intricate as this movie. And I think that's just so fun. I also appreciate how uh, 
you know every inch of the dwarf's house. They spend all this time there because they have the whistle while you work sequence and all of that. There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of really great de- detail hidden throughout the whole, I mean the whole movie and and what that teaches us from that perspective and, and moving forward in the industry is that when you really care, those details make a bigger picture that does matter a lot. Like the dwarves' house could have been a very simple like shack kind of style, but knowing the intricacy of the carvings and detailing and woodwork and things like that, it sets a like a regional sense. You had said very Germanic, and, and that's kind of where we assume the story is meant to be based, is, is probably in that region. Um, and, I mean, you really wouldn't get that if not for those kind of details. And while it's not super relevant to the story, like, it, it's not a big deal where they are in the world, it does bring about this bigger sense of, of atmosphere, because you kind of know. Um, and you had mentioned how much time they spend in the house, and that does lead us to my, my biggest complaint about movies like this, um, which is their pacing. Yes. Um, the, Absolutely. The hours, the movie is only an hour and 20 minutes, right? It's just under a 90-minute runtime. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a feature-length film. Like, it's, it's long. But the story is really tight, and they fill a lot of space with really long sequences. Um, and it's funny because we had talked about how that kind of is an immediate contrast to media of today. Yeah. The, the pacing in this movie is not about the plot. It's very much atmospheric. Um, you had mentioned the scene where they spend a long time, like, washing their hands. And they do. They spend a good, like, ten minutes <laughs> singing a song about washing their hands. And I mean the the sweeping out the house when and, and even with coming home from work and like we only spend two days with these characters. Yeah, that's the span of time in this movie, basically. And it's it's, I mean, we see like a full routine. We see them go to work and come home and like wash their hands and prepare for you know bed and then that like that takes a good forty five minutes. And I think it's just it, it's in that mentality that. Uh, they made these seven dwarfs, and they're not going to appear in any other shorts. And they are just putting them all in these situations. Like, wouldn't it be funny to see uh, Dopey and Doc and the gang, uh, you know, sneak up to yeah. their bedroom to see if there's someone there? There's a whole sequence about them figuring out if there's someone in their house and who that person is. Like, yeah. they run away, they're scared, and they come back. And everything in this movie is very much set to Frank Churchill's score. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit more about Frank Churchill as we go along, but music is integral to this movie from the very outset. Every, there's no sound design, basically. Yeah. There are some, like, Foley and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, it's all dictated. Like, when they're sneaking, you got a bum, brum, brum, brum. And then when the animals are running away from something, there's all these flourishes and ostinatos as they run into the woods or something like that. Everything has a musical counterpart. And it calls back to the, the sense of it being like an operetta. Um, yeah. Because of how integral that is to everything that happens. Um, and, and the pacing isn't a bad thing in the slightest. I mean, it's it. I think me being the kind of audience member that knows how the story ends and having not seen this in so long... Um, it, it feels like it's dragging only because I, I, I know where it's going. Yeah. And, like, I don't need to spend this much time watching them sweep. But it's really important because it 
it sets the tone. I mean, this is a very, like, contained story about, essentially, a little family. So seeing, like, how they interact and how they are to each other and to their home and things like that adds to the overall sense of, like, you know, scale and, and atmosphere. So while it may not be my favorite thing and it does make the movie feel slow, it's not an action movie by any means. No. So it's a fitting way to approach it. And often, even in non-action movies today, I like to say a lot of modern movies, uh, live action and animated in many ways, are very much roller coaster rides. You kind of go in and you kind of you you kind of turn your brain off and just kind of let the characters make all the choices. And if they make a and that's why I think so many people are hung up on plot holes right now because if a character makes a decision you wouldn't make, it's just it ruins the illusion for people because people just want to have these these action these actions just kind of tumult one after the other until the inevitable ending. Yeah. So you'll notice in a lot of movies now there are so many obstacles thrown at the characters. Yeah. And it's just obstacle after obstacle. Every scene has another thing or else, you know, it's people get bored. And this movie certainly doesn't have a lot of obstacles. Now that you say that actually, there's not really any at all. Because once she gets, she doesn't know what's happening until the huntsman is like, you need to run away right now. Yeah. She gets lost in the woods and that's kind of scary, but like she overcomes it almost immediately. And then she just assumes her life will, this is her life now. There's, there's no like constant fear or like trying to prepare an attack or anything like that. She just fits really comfortably back into these dwarves lives and just accepts that as kind of what's going to happen. And we get this nice like slice of life until the witch comes back and finds her. So, like, what? yeah, that's kind of fascinating that the way that the plot is structured doesn't really lend itself to issue. Exactly. It, it, it's, it does function like a, a non-confrontational vaudeville act in many of the sequences. Um, they do chase her off the cliff, the queen. Uh, oh, yeah, well... They, and there is a moment where she's like, I'm going to crush their bones and stuff like that. She is pretty menacing, by oh, the Oh, yeah, way. no, the queen, the queen is... She does not hold her punches. Because, yeah, she's just, she's a little bit extra, like, in every way. She's Uh-oh. she's definitely, like, her motivation is that she's not the prettiest. It's not even about power or, like, being in control of the kingdom. She's just super pissed she's not as pretty as her stepdaughter. What's interesting is there are, I never realized how heavy-handed it was, but there are multiple times when she turns to the camera and is like, now I'm the fairest of them all, but you see her as the ugly hag self, and I'm like, oh, I see what you're getting at. Uh-huh. That's that's what happens when you're vain. <laughs> Look at that. And, I mean, it's it's funny. It's, like, enjoyable. Like, as an audience member, it's, I mean, it's a scary scene for what it is. Like, when she, when she's, like, in her dungeon. Yeah. And she, like, turns herself into this hag. The sequence is kind of intimidating. But, like, when you remove it from the the actual, like, way it was animated, it is kind of like a, it's like a funny miscommunication. She used a magic potion to turn herself into an old hag. She could have made herself younger. Yeah, she like, could have just been anyone. She didn't have to be an old woman. Yeah, she just is very, like, vindictive. She is, she's kind of funny. And I'm thinking about, like, she's kind of careless, too. Like, she didn't read the whole directions. And she's like, yeah. oh, I made the apple. And then she's like, oh, no, love's first kiss. Oh, crap. She actually tells kind of jokes. Yeah. Like, when she gives it, she tries to give the apple to her crow pet. 
And she as says, one has. do you want a bite? And then she laughs and pulls it away and says, no, no, it's not for you. It, Why did you offer it to your crow? Just to freak him. Like, she's like, I'm real spoopy right now or and I'm going to enjoy it. When she goes down the basement, there's a skeleton, like, hanging out of a jail cell reaching for an empty vase. And she says, thirsty? And then kicks it into the skeleton. <laughs> like, that's, that's, I mean, it's not nice. No, she's not nice. It but... is definitely funny she is entertaining yeah um so one of the hilarious things in this movie is people complain like the prince is only in the opening scene and the closing scene and and snow white's motivation is constantly like ah well someday my prince will come um the reason why he didn't show up a lot is because no one at disney animation (laughs) knew how to do a man they could do dwarves just fine they couldn't draw a guy and so like whenever he was on screen they like remove him from view as much as possible yeah um and i think it's so humorous because there was supposed to be like this whole subplot where the queen captures the prince after learning about this Mm. and um and and i mean they fix it too because she's like well when she falls asleep and she's like basically dead they're gonna bury her alive that's like uh, like that's even better but um, <laughs> she kidnaps him for good measure in one of the deleted sequences. And then she just uh, animates a, a skeleton to entertain him while yeah. she's gone. Yeah, you know, as one does as, a, as an evil witch. Um, but it, it's funny because I know that that's one of the biggest critiques of this is that that's Snow White's whole motivation. But truthfully, she, her only motivation is to like not get murdered. Yeah. She runs away, but she's not running away like, oh, my prince will come. The only reason she even tells them that story is because they ask. They're like, so, like, what do you want, Snow? They're and like, yeah, tell us, you know, are you, and she doesn't even answer when he says, are you the princess? She just keeps going with the story. So, I mean, while it's important to her, and, I mean, obviously she's thrilled when it happens, it's not like she spends her whole time in the house with the dwarves, like, lamenting the fact that he's not there yet kind of thing. The dramatic question is, will she survive? Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more like, I guess this is my life now. Like, I'm happy to be here. She's not, you know, she she manages to escape the woods, and then she just makes a life wherever she ends up. And she's very resilient. Good for her. Yeah, exactly. And in after that terrifying sequence animated by Vlad Taitla, I think he has, like, a nickname, Vladimir Taitla. I think he has, like, a fun name, but uh, I forget it. Um, He's he, one of the animators who is well known for doing the Chernabog sequence in Fantasia. Yeah, exactly. And it's that's one of my favorite sequences is her running through the woods. It's scary. It's very scary. All of these trees like come alive. I'm sure you remember it from your nightmares. And then afterwards, she's like, I am so scared. Well, I guess I'm going to sing a little ditty. And that's when like the first time a princess interacts with animals in the way that has become a trope hilariously. Yeah. But someone had to decide in this movie to be like, well... She's going to tame them with kindness. Yeah. And honestly, at, at the end of the movie, obviously she's certainly not the active agent in the queen's demise or anything. But because she was so kind to the dwarves, they s- saved her, essentially. Yeah. They didn't bury her alive. I mean, even the animals, when, when the queen showed up, like bolted and went and dragged the dwarves back so they could help. Like, it's, it is nice to see that subconsciously like without snow white even realizing what she had done her just general air of kindness was is her greatest strength she's the fairest of them all not because of looks but because she's just kind oh i love that and i think that's kind of what disney 
That's wanted the whole from point it. Of the movie. Um, because it was it was the queen's vanity that was her downfall. Um, I I will say probably looking at this movie through a feminist lens is probably not too great for Snow. Um, I mean, I I, st- I still hold that for what for who she is and what the story tells us. Snow White is is nothing if not kind of resilient. I mean, I, she she goes out to the woods with with a, an accompanying party in the Huntsman to like pick flowers. He almost murders her and then is like, "Listen, you need to run." And without, I mean, she's like a little like, <laughs> but she she bolts. So she listens and she runs deep into the woods with nothing on her. Yeah. And then um, faints. <laughs> And then the animals wake her up, and she doesn't immediately, like, run away from them or say, like, take me somewhere. She kind of plays with them for a few minutes and, like, relaxes and then is like, do you know where I can go? And they help her. So even from the get-go, I mean, she's no damsel in distress, I guess. She's just kind of, like, trusting that things will work out. Exactly. You know? At no point is she portrayed as, like... I mean, she's a victim, obviously, but at no point is she shown to be, like, incapable of managing herself or whatever's happened to her. She's She just kind of finds her space and then does what she loves. She clearly really enjoys cooking and cleaning, and that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, frankly, I'm a, the same way. I mean, it's always interesting, because Disney only had his hand involved in uh, three Disney princess movies, mm-hmm. and how many of those are there now? Yeah. So so it's always interesting, because the original three are always looked on as kind of like the worst character-wise, but he really kind of went about these stories just kind of making them not, obviously not as complex characters as we're used to now, but they're usually trying to tell a thematic thing. You know, yeah. it's usually telling... He's trying to teach kids about kind of the virtues of being kind. Yeah. Um, and I think as like flawed as it is to be naive and not understanding about how people work and not as defensive of yourself as you should be, um, when you think of Snow White, Cinderella, and Aurora and Sleeping Beauty... Um, they each kind of have their own little theme to kind of gravitate around. And if you chill with the, those three movies for a little while, you'll realize that the movies aren't always completely about the titular character. Yes, yeah. I know we've we've talked a little bit about Sleeping Beauty especially. Yes. Um, and how that movie kind of is. Um, and that is something that we will definitely get into in another episode. But for for Snow White as a character and and for what her story arc really means i mean she doesn't really grow like the 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 movie doesn't isn't a big character change for her she she just you know her life is a scullery maid she was always kind and was never jaded by it um, and i mean we're led to assume that she probably doesn't live under the best circumstances but it's not quite the same as Cinderella's story where Cinderella's yeah. like actively abused um, but Snow White's always been, like, happy and kind. And then she just carries that with her, and that positivity ends up being kind of what saves her. But she doesn't learn a lesson. No. <laughs> like, there's no there's no real growth there, because that's, that's not really the story that's being told. Um, this is very much like a fairy tale. And while the story is tight and the, the plot makes sense, it's a fairy tale. It, it, the, the moral of the story is, like, be kind, don't be vain. But not, like, Snow White is this great activist who's gonna do X, Y, or Z. Um, I mean, and and I had said this when we finished watching it, the ending feels kind of rushed. 
because yeah. the movie has spent so much time getting us to the ending when she finally gets kissed and wakes up she just kind of pieces she just kisses everybody on the head and then leaves forever <laughs> um, which feels kind of you know quick but for the way that the movie's set up as a fairy tale i mean that's that's it how makes total it's, sense it's supposed to end on they lived happily ever after like we get the whole story and then the ending is like then the rest of their lives continued in peace like, yeah, there there have been no sequels to have there really not been to any? Snow White, and I think not the only one. Actually, no, that's not true. There, there was, was some... a Fantasia two thousand, and then there was a Bambi two, but they never they've never expanded the Snow White, Pinocchio, or Dumbo universes. So, in all intents and purposes, Snow White just went on and lived happily ever after, just fine. Uh, we know nothing of the Prince's Kingdom. We know nothing. Of the, the state of her kingdom, I think we kind of talked about how, like, well, they marry, so I think their kingdoms join. So, um, I think that kind of resolves itself. I don't I don't think Disney intended for us to consider the geopolitics, as as per usual. Um, it, 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 Moana is even guilty of, of still this stuff, you know? You can't really dwell too much. And, in effect, they are kids' movies. They're still teaching lessons like, oh, wash your hands before dinner. And isn't it nice to clean up and make sure you go to work? Um, I do want to take a moment to talk about Frank Churchill. So Frank Churchill wrote the music, and I believe, I'm going to double check this, Larry Morey wrote the, uh, wrote the lyrics. And, um, and, and yeah, Paul Smith, who would do the choral arrangements throughout the first couple of Disney movies, also did the choral arrangements for this movie. Now, um, he did music for this, for uh, Dumbo, and also for a bunch of the previous shorts. He did Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, and of course he did what is near and dear to my heart, Bambi. (laughs) Um, But um, Frank Churchill has a very tragic life. He wrote all of these very iconic songs, like Someday My Prince Will Come, uh, Smile at a Song, and even uh, Baby Mine, the saddest sequence ever in Dumbo. Oh, jeez. Um, oh, man. So he wrote these wonderful tunes, and he also would score the picture, and he'd write the music before they even animated anything. And they'd animate the like the film to his music, and that's why everything lines up so perfectly. I was going to say, Snow White being a really excellent example of how well that worked. Um, unfortunately, uh, he, was, he was depressed, and a little in 1941 or 42... After actually a couple of his friends who were in, in music at Disney also, like in the orchestras, also committed suicide, he did as well. And um, he, it's very sad. He has a very sad story. And uh, for someone who contributed so much to the Disney aesthetic, which has always like championed music, yes, it's I personally think it's too bad that he's not talked about. So it's kind of a personal uh, uh, activism to bring his name out of the shadows. This this episode is pulling up a lot of, like, there were a lot of people in the original Disney crew that are worth talking about that, that really quickly get forgotten. Um, and, I mean, like you said, Disney has always been, one of their hallmarks is their commitment to how important music is to the medium of animation. So Churchill especially is is a big figure to be talked about. And of, of course, it's you know a tragic downfall. Exactly, and and you know after of course after that you know that's when 
Disney kind of hit its dark ages. That's when the strike happened. Yeah. And that's when they were kind of in the dark during the war years. Um, and in fact, many of the the big five, which are which people refer to as the first five Disney animated films, Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, um, many of them didn't return what they needed to get back until, except for like Snow White, I think. Snow White, the, the, the profit that came off of Snow White, which which was very, very marked, um, and, and many people know this, but Snow White actually won an honorary Academy Award that year, um, which was the first time an animated film had won an award until, God, Beauty and the Beast got nominated, but then they actually made a category in the yeah. 90s. So th- in 1939, um, there, there was actually like a, not an honorary major award for them, but... The, the money that they made off of Snow White actually is the money that built Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Yeah. And it's it's all from this... And people didn't believe this movie was going to happen, but everyone loved it. And here we are today, uh, nine Disney princess films later. I don't know if that's the right number, but it feels like... <laughs> that, God, that seems low. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess it depends. We're, we're going to have to like split hairs to decide like who's actually considered princesses i know they always drop out princess ilanwi from the black cauldron uh, that's true she often gets dropped out of the princess lineup <laughs> and they include non-princesses like mulan i was gonna say mulan is the one that i was thinking of like would you consider her i mean she's in the official lineup she but is not in my heart no she's <laughs> only room for prince princess ilanwi M- mulan is definitely in like the top five badasses of my heart but like otherwise <laughs> not a princess <laughs> not a princess so, it, what Snow White did for the animation industry, I mean, truthfully, it started it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's there's a lot to it, but it, because it was the first, it that's really its its biggest addition is the fact that it really made audiences believe that this was possible, I, and I mean that that in and of itself is a really impressive feat. Is that they made something that had never been made before. Yeah. And, and started a, a completely new type of cinema. And I mean, it, like like we said in the beginning, there's been lots of animated films, depending on your definition, before this movie came out. But what this movie did was make it mainstream. It made it accessible to audiences, and it put Disney Studios in the focus. And I mean, truthfully, if this kind of success hadn't happened early on, they wouldn't have survived the Dark Ages in the 40s. They had a good momentum going in. They may not have been making a lot of money, but what they were doing for audiences was giving them a reason to want to keep the studio around. So while money may not have been great, the the marked growth in the studio's production and concepts and that consistent love of what they were doing definitely made Disney grow. Yeah. So tell us more about what you guys think about Snow White. And maybe if you get a chance sometime this week, maybe it's worth a rewatch. I bet you you'll find something that you really like from it. Let us know. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr And well. Instagram. And Instagram. So, all right. This is Colby Herschel. And Carly Shandrum. Signing off. Mm-hmm.